Peace, peace, peace. Welcome to another episode of Wazda Dome TV. Today, I have a very special guest. Um, I mean, he's a, he's a, 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 he wears many hats. He's an author, he's a journalist, um, organizer, activist, uh, and a lot, a lot more than that, man. And he's a great thinker, um, a really good brother, a powerful, powerful brother with um, a lot of experience and information that he's going to be able to share with us. So uh, please welcome Brother Sam P.K. Collins. I appreciate you for coming through. And I appreciate you providing the platform. You know, shout out to you. Really enjoy watching your program. I love the lineup you got, you know, just your whole liberty. So very happy to be a, amongst like minds. Appreciate it, brother. It's definitely an honor to have you on, man. And so since this is your first time uh, on, uh, I want to ask you, you know, what kind of, what sparked you uh, and inspired you to begin your journey into being African-centered and to having knowledge yourself and self-realization? All right, no doubt. Uh, I can definitely explain that. Um, if you hear a little bit of noise in the back, you got to forgive me. That's my dog. He's just <laughs> no problem. spoiled like that at times. <laughs> right. uh, as far as African-centered, um, I think the journey started from birth. Um, I was born here in, in the States. My folks are from Liberia, West Africa. Uh, so, and I was born in DC, DC being Chocolate City. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of my life just navigating two worlds, so to speak, mm -hmm. especially after hopping off the porch at the age of 12 or 13 or so. Um, and just going between two worlds, like I said, um, you know, first being a first generation American, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, learning about, you know, D.C. culture as far as go-go music, the D.C. lingo and being immersed in that. But also, you know, living among Liberian family and learning about the Civil War, learning about our history. Mm -hmm. And the history in particular was what introduced me to Pan-Africanism, even mm -hmm. though at the time I was not aware of what Pan-Africanism was, uh, because with my last name being Collins, the question that will often come up would be, well, if you're African, you know, and I say African because we're all Africans, but, you know, if you're a continental African, then why is your last name Collins? And I would have to explain Liberia's history. And the Liberian Civil War had been going on for as long as I was born or alive. So I was born in, I was born October 89, and the Civil War started around Christmas of 89. We had two Civil Wars. And the last one wrapped up in 03. So by the time the last one wrapped up, I was starting high school. So and even just at the at my age, you know, growing up, I was I was well read. My uncle um, on my father's side, who married into my family, actually, he's a, a professor in Liberia, Dr. Amos Sirleaf. So uh, he wrote about the Liberian Civil War. There were other books in my house that, you know, I read, of course, coming up. Uh, church family, blood family, whoever else would often, you know, go to demonstrations. Even the Liberian embassy in D.C. was burnt down at some point for whatever reason. And I would just recall, you know, going there at a um, at a at a charcoal embassy, you know, at one point before they rebuilt it. Mm -hmm. So well, long before I knew what Pan-Africanism was, I knew I knew Mama Liberia and I knew his history. And, and I knew that no matter where you were in the world as a black person, you could identify as an African because I knew of at least one place on the continent where black people of different ethnic and national backgrounds coalesced. You know, I knew of at least one place. So 
you know, I can hang out anywhere and see the diversity, you know, mm -hmm. in, in people. It all started with Liberia. And especially after crossing the D.C. Maryland line, going to Tacoma Park and just seeing other Africans and Caribbeans and, you know, Africans born in America, being around them and seeing the similarities in our culture. So it was always a part of my liberty long before the organizing. Yeah, that's deep. And we I definitely want to we definitely are going to get into more of some of Liberia's history. But before we do that, uh, you had mentioned, you know, uh, growing up in D.C. and, you know, you had things. Uh, D.C. obviously has its own culture. I mean, as far as, you know, black culture with go-go music and the food and, and, and just, you know, many different things, you know, bookstores such as Sankofa. Um, now, now, do you, do you feel that like well, what changes in DC have you noticed? Like you know, because DC has always been chocolate city to us, right? And then we yeah. know that it be, it's you know just like every other major uh, city or location in America, it's becoming gentrified some, right? Like, have you noticed? Any changes within DC from growing up until now? Oh yeah, uh, DC is all the way gentrified, other than a few areas. And DC is a very powerful black city, a chocolate city, because we've we had um, black leadership, you know, in the DC council and even within the executive, the mayor at some point. Mm -hmm. And DC is not a state. DC is a city that is controlled somewhat by Congress and by the federal government. And that's by design because the so-called founding fathers, they didn't want the seat of government being the state and that state having an advantage over other states. So, you know, for a long time, black people in D.C., uh, we were a special kind of black people. Uh, if you look back um, during the antebellum period, uh, like the 19th century, we, 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 we were the first freed. First freed being like before the Emancipation Proclamation, there was an act of Congress passed that freed black people living in D.C. from chattel slavery. So, you know, people from the South were migrating to D.C. to get to freedom. And this was in 1862 or 1863. We celebrate Emancipation Day every year, you know, for that reason. And D.C. was also a hub for black education. Paul Lawrence Dunbar High School, the first mm. African-American high school in, in the whole United States. Right. You know, a lot of the, our brightest minds were in D.C. teaching people. Um, Anna Julia Cooper, Nanny Helen Burroughs, Paul mm -hmm. Lawrence Dunbar, like very powerful city. But all the while, because it was a powerful black city and because it was under the thumb of the federal government, you know, the federal government being mostly white control did its best to keep D.C. powerless. And you saw this um, when they took away home rule, home rule, meaning that. We had no no government of our own. We just got home rule back about 50 years ago. And home rule gave us our own D.C. council. It gave us um, the mayor, you know, and it, uh, to some degree, it gave us our legal system. Because even right now, you know, if you're in D.C. and you catch a charge and you get convicted, we don't have a jail. We don't have a prison here. Our prison got shut down in the 1990s. So as a D.C. So like as a person in D.C., if you get convicted, you're going to get sent anywhere in the country within the federal prison system. Wow. Yeah. And D.C. people, 
they got a certain reputation in the prison system and they catch a lot of violence in there as well. So, you know, D.C. is very ripe for a lot of movements, mm -hmm. which brings me to my point about gentrification. Right. Gentrification is here. It's coming. It's gone. And it's still here. You know, if anything, the highest concentration of black people is in the Great Ward 8, which is on the south side. And when you go to Ward 8, they got the highest concentration of young people, mm -hmm. um, highest prevalence of violence. The highest prevalence of substance use, uh, housing insecurity, so forth and so on. And even with that, brother, like it got gentrified to an extent through gerrymandering. You know, when they changed the boundaries. And so what they did was Ward 8 is divided by a river. And what they did was about a year or so ago, they extended Ward 8 across the river into a white part. So they brought white people into Ward 8. And there's some speculation about what that might do in terms of voting and in terms of representation. Like one of our council members who represents Ward 8, he is of the community. And, you know, the way you, you know, just seeing, you know, him, he's very passionate about representing the ward, you know, so forth and so on. And even with that, you know, there's some speculation and fear about what the gerrymandering could do to that. Mm. And, you know, just to answer your question, because mm -hmm. I'm going on and on. No, but you're good. Mm -hmm. The gentrification. The crazy part about it is, right, and this is what they do. All mm -hmm. right. And gentrification is nothing but modern day colonization. Mm. So what they do is mm. you live in your communities, you indigenous lifestyle. They come in one by one. They take over. Right. They form their own government. And then parts of your culture that were there, that were organic, they bottled it up and they created for mass consumption. Mm -hmm. They create holidays around it. They create festivals. They control it in different environments. The same thing happened with go-go music. You know, mind you, go-go got violent in the 90s and the early 2000s, but that was because it wasn't the music itself. It was more so the culture around it. And when I say culture, I'm not talking about go-go culture, but I'm talking more so about hood culture. Hood culture being like, if you and I are beefing and we're from two different hoods, we're going to get down at the go-go because mm. all that that's the same thing. People made go-go the scapegoat when in fact it was, you know, just lack of conflict resolution. Right. And once the go-go started shutting down and go-go, you know, was on life support, and then, you know, uh, there was one movement called Don't Meet DC that happened in 2019. I remember that. that. revived it, you know. Mm -hmm. Then what happened was they tried to legislate, make go-go official music in DC. They did that. But at the same time, we have people who are enjoying go-go, but they cannot live here comfortably. So mm -hmm. once again, mass consumption of the culture, but the people who originated the culture can't even live here comfortably, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And that's just it just goes hand in hand with that every time, you know, they, we got a go go museum coming up. Mm -hmm. They got live shows outside festivals, you know, people getting a lot of play, but it's very expensive to live in D.C. Wow. Um, and it, it also about D.C., I wanted to ask you, having grown up there, as you mentioned, um, Black Mayor uh, and just first thing that came to mind was Marion Barry, uh, graduate of Fisk University, also a member of SNCC uh, one time. And um, most mainstream 
outside of DC report on rep, like to report on Marion Barry as the person that got caught with the drugs, right? Or in, in the but whenever I talk to brothers and sisters in DC, like regardless to that situation, I hear a lot of to be honest, I hear a lot of praise for Marion Barry. Um like what are your thoughts on like I guess the legacy of Marion Barry from you know just being in office in DC and you uh being from DC. Marion Barry put on a lot of people and he represented black government. Uh as a matter of fact, they're renaming a street in DC in Marion Barry's honor. That street is called Good Hope Road. Mm -hmm. When you cross into Ward 8 across the 11th Street Bridge, you meet Good Hope Road right there in downtown Anacostia. As far as his legacy, you know, I think SNCC, of course, like you mentioned, the D.C. State Board of Education, he was on that for a while. Uh, he became mayor, of course, four terms, one term after he was convicted and imprisoned uh, for the situation that you mentioned. Um, very pivotal part of his legacy is the creation of the D.C. Summit Jobs Program. Mm. So D.C. is one of the few jurisdictions, if not the only Mm -hmm. The only one I know of, there might be a few others, but if they were created, they were inspired by D.C. This is a jurisdiction where, where young people between the ages of 13 and 24 can get six weeks of employment. Wow. Now, mind you, the pay, mm -hmm. I think the pay is paltry and I think the city can invest more. Mm -hmm. But this was an idea that Marion Barry uh, pioneered and he invested in. Anytime you talk to a D.C. old head, a Gen Xer or a millennial, they're going to tell you. Marion Barry gave me my first job, and mm. he did by creating that program. So through that program, D.C. agencies and private institutions, they were able to hire young people with funding from the D.C. government for up to six weeks. And young people, if they worked hard enough or they were, you know, just hustling enough, they, they would often parlay those opportunities into long term work. You mm -hmm. know, we got young brothers and sisters coming out of D.C. summer jobs who've worked in D.C. government, who've gone on to national uh, 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 offices and positions and just gone all over the country and the world because of D.C. summer jobs. So Marion Barry's legacy, they want to boil it down, you know, to that whole situation. But even with that, you got to understand, like, Marion Barry was a product, just as any other person was, was a product of his environment and of the time, which is why, you know, he resonated with a lot of people. Now, at the same time, in the spirit of journalism, I am going to keep it 100. You know, there are people when speaking about Marion Barry, they were a bit concerned about where the city was going, you know, in terms of services mm. and in terms of quality of life. But mm. at the very same time, you got to paint context around that. D.C. was under the siege of the federal government. So after Marion Barry's uh, troubles, um, what the federal government did, they took control of D.C., um, and they had what was called a comptroller or something like that, um, where this guy called Anthony Williams, he came in and he, you know, attempted to rebalance the budget because at the time DC was in a deficit and, you know, it's much more complicated than a mayor doing whatever. You got to talk about revenue, crack epidemic, high violence, right? People leaving DC, mind you, listen, bro. Marion Barry gave people not only jobs for the summer, young people, but he created jobs in the D.C. government. He wow. created a black middle class, bro. Mm. And the black middle class 
when they got enough money, right, either through Metro or through the D.C. government, where did they go? They took their money and went to the suburbs of D.C. to buy homes. Mm. So, you know, the, the flight wasn't just white. Mm -hmm. It was black middle class flight that created PG County, which at one point in time wow. was the richest black county in, in, in America. Right. Marion Barry. Wow. I didn't know. I, I never knew. I never knew that connection as far as because I've you know I've read I've been there and I've read those articles about PG County and I think it still might be I'm not sure but uh, nah, it's Charles County now out Waldorf okay yeah because yeah, even with that man you study like economics and all that man mm -hmm. and like how like the whole Babylon system works because at one point when it was just the black middle class moving out to PG that tax base was big enough to make it wealthy but then at a certain point, more of our people started moving out there, our people of lower means. Mm -hmm. And then the balance just got all messed up again. And then with that, the quality of the schools and this and that. So now we call PG Ward 9 because D.C. has eight wards. And Ward 9 is where D.C. folks move to mm -hmm. PG County, right, mm -hmm. when the stuff gets a little bit expensive. Mm -hmm. But it's still kind of expensive out there, mind you. But at the same time, like just like I said, PG County was the wealthiest black county. But because of the movement of black people out there and the way that the system is set up in which anything that is valued black is valued lower, mm. it sort of got off balance. And now mm. you got Charles County, which is even further out as the richest black county. Wow. Yeah, that's deep. Um, I, I want to kind of for everybody tuning in. Um, Brother Sam P.K. Collins is an amazing journalist. Um, and I think you can, as you can probably tell by his insights. Um, and so I, I kind of want to start from the beginning of uh, your journalism career. Um, if, you, uh, yeah, if you can, um, how did you get into journalism? Let everybody know. How did you get into journalism and kind of... Um, because there are some things that I want to ask you, you know, about things that you experienced earlier, early in your, uh, you know, journalistic career. But if you can, just let us know how you how you actually, you know, became a journalist. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I've been writing and talking in public since I was little, you know, mm -hmm. so even in church growing up in Pentecostal community. Every fourth Sunday, we'd write a little essay, speak in front of the church. And fifth grade, we had a class newspaper. I wrote for that. By the eighth grade, we're choosing after school clubs. I wanted to do computer. My father, I guess, observing me, he told me, he pushed me to journalism. He said, well, nah, you like writing and talking, do the school newspaper. Mm. And it was myself along with maybe like three or four other people. Mind you, I was the only brother on the team. Mm -hmm. And then it just so happened that I became editor of that school paper at Paul Public Charter School. Uh, and so then after that, I went on to high school. There was no school paper there at Banneker at the time, if I recall. I wrote for Young DC, which was a paper for DC youth all over the DC metropolitan area. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I went on to GW on a full scholarship. Um, yeah, GW was a turning point in the sense that uh, I founded a magazine there. It was called the Ace Magazine, a magazine for the black community. I had a lot of internships. I did my undergrad there, my graduate school work there. During that time, um, you know, after being involved in black student leadership, uh, I started 
writing for the Washington Informant newspaper. And then that's a black woman owned newspaper, third generation black owned newspaper in DC in the heart of Ward 8. And then even during that time, I was a White House press pool mm. correspondent mm -hmm. or, or even like an intern. Um, I was interning with him, April Ryan, who, 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 who at the time was um, with the American Urban Radio Networks. So I was, you know, when she didn't make pool duty, I would go in her place and follow President Obama around, write what he was doing, send it off to other people. So I was doing that between, if I recall correctly, 2012 and 2014. And then from 2012 on, I was writing for The Informer. I wrote for Think Progress, a progressive uh, online publication. And I also did what was called All Eyes on DC up at Sankofa. So every month we would have artists, guests come on the program, you know, you name it, we had them. You know, Tony Browder, uh, Dr. Ray Wimbush, Mama Hasanatu Kamara, uh, Obi wow. Abuna Jr., mm -hmm. Nana Faraika Bahani. Uh, we had them, you know, right. uh, we had Young Pharaoh at one point. Uh, whole lot of people, just like a live news program. I interviewed them. They talked candidly about the issues affecting us as African people, and we got solution oriented. And I carried that on with me. To this day, I'm still with the Informer newspaper, but I'm also an educator. I work within the African-centered space, helping young people write. But the journalism, to answer your question, you know, I've been in it um, as a craft. I've been developing this craft, I'd say, man, uh, more than 20 years now. Yeah, wow. more than 20 years. Yeah. yeah. And that's dope that your father was able to see that in you. You know, like that's part of one of the things as as a father, that's that's I mean, it's whenever you know your children, whenever you have that insight of, of who your children are and you can see what their passions are. It's a beautiful thing to be able to point that out and, you know, help nudge them in that direction. So also salute to you, Pops, for that, man. That's um that's dope. Uh, then you kind of brought up something that um, I wanted to expound on a little bit. Uh, Washington Informer um, is. Uh, like you said, a, a black woman owned uh, newspaper um, throughout our history as African people here in America. We've had, uh, you know, newspapers like uh, the Chicago Defender, um, Nation Islam, Muhammad Speaks. You had the, you know, early in the beginning, you had the North Star. You had uh, so many different publications. Um, if you can uh, get into a little bit more about well, if you can, I want you to add on about how important Black-owned media is and why it's still important to this day. Oh, yeah, it's very important, man. You know, Black-owned media, um, it, it's 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 all about pleading our cause. And like that's how the National Newspaper Publishers Association was started. Uh, you know, when you talk about the Black press in America, you know, you can't forget John B. Russworm. You know, John B. Russworm was a proponent of the black press. You had Samuel Cornish as well. They started that organization or that conglomerate of papers. Uh, as a matter of fact, John B. Russworm, I respect wholeheartedly because he was a proponent of repatriation and he mm -hmm. actually made the move to Liberia, you know, in my studies I found. So, you know, you see Liberia pop up quite a lot. Mm -hmm. during the 18th and the ninth, during the 19th and 20th century. So, you know, shout out to Mama Liberia. 
as far as the black press, the black press was where a lot of our leaders went to. And it was where our people during the time and throughout history looked to for news. And it's where, you know, a lot of people in the black press, journalists specifically, were able to spread their wings. The black press gave me a lot of opportunities because the newsrooms are smaller. It's a bit more of an intimate environment. People take care of you and you get a bit of a cultural and a historical context mm. that is missing oftentimes from what they call traditional newsrooms. Yeah. Because I've been in those newsrooms, you know, it's pretty cold. Um, there's, an, there's an energy there in which, you know, you're forced to fit into some sort of box. They're not quite understanding of the trials and tribulations that we go through. You know, there are certain cultural cues that they might not be attuned to. And when you go out into the streets, black people, for the most part, they might not be as trustworthy of you, depending mm. on some cases. Now, mind you, they might be more familiar with those publications, but they might not trust you as much if they have a consciousness, mm -hmm. which is why the black press has always been pivotal in telling our stories and pleading our cause. And you see it all across, you know, the United States. Um, Ida B. Wells, you yeah, know what free, I'm saying? Uh, like, was, it headlight, was it Free Headlighting Press or what was it, what was it called? Uh, Memphis, uh, man, you, I'm stumped. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, but I know it got burnt down. Yeah, it, and it, I know on, that it's on Bill Street. Yeah, and I know that she, you know, even when you talk about Rosa Parks, you know, mm -hmm. Ida B. Wells did the same thing in the streetcars. Ida mm -hmm. B. Wells was very pivotal in exposing the whole lynching. Mm -hmm. uh, um, lynching uh, situation, you know, in the, um, you know, in the in the whole Reconstruction era, just mm -hmm. about how black men were scapegoated, you know, uh, uh, and 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 you know, and the sexual prowess of white women was often, you know, the catalyst behind lynching black men at high numbers. Mm -hmm. And this type of powerful reporting got Ida B. Wells expelled forcefully out of Memphis because they burned down, you know. Um, her uh, her office mm -hmm. and they were about to kill her. Right. Mm -hmm. So Ida B. Wells, you know, and to your question again, during the Reconstruction era, black literacy. Increased. At, 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 at a very enormous rate, because we were very eager to learn how to read. We had publications coming up. Mm -hmm. The church was powerful. Right. You know, mm -hmm. uh, as well as, you know, some of our people who are who are who are educated. But the church was powerful in the sense that the church financed a lot of these publications. And even to this day, you know, with the legacy black publications, you see a relationship between the church and the newspapers. Yeah. And for better or worse, you see a relationship with the newspapers and the black politicians. Mm -hmm. Now, whether, you know, that is um, whether, whether that is what's the word I'm looking for, whether that is prudent or effective. You know, I don't think so. But it, again, it speaks to the legacy of how well and how much the black press was trusted to tell the stories of black people at the time. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, it kind of reminds me of I, I read a story the other day that I guess a lot of reporters at BBC uh, recently quit and were in tears of the way they were un the way they weren't allowed to write certain things about the uh, issue in Palestine right now, um, you know, in regards to their genocide. And, and so like, I can imagine 
I can imagine it being uh, mainstream press in that manner. It, it seems cold. The reporting is even cold, right? So if the reporting is cold, like, you know, it's out those war rooms. I mean, it's cold and it's an agenda to it. Um, I know that you 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 say you stated that you, you know, reported on uh, President Obama's activities uh, as a you know White House press pool reporter. Um, what what was that experience like and how did it shape your approach to journalism? Yeah, it was uh, great, man. Great question. Uh, it was. I mean, I thought it was a good opportunity, you know, with a dream. Mm -hmm. um, I got the opportunity through uh, Dorothy Gilliam. Uh, she was the first black uh, female reporter for The Washington Post. And at the time, she was working within the School of Media and Public Affairs at GW. So uh, she hooked me up with the, with the situation. I got to meet April Ryan. And, you know, it was a good opportunity just being in that press pool. Uh, I got I got a I didn't get an official badge, but I got a badge that got me through, mm -hmm. you know, the you know, in those rooms where the reporters, they sit down and they get to ask questions. I was in the press. I was in the press room, you know, from time to time. And I would also go in the van. So anytime the president is going somewhere, they got a whole motorcade, a whole entourage and the pool and, and the reporters are oftentimes in in about one or two of those vans, because the idea is that they follow the president around and then they document the president's every move to send to send the information to other newspapers. So if I'm so so if I'm if, if I'm a reporter elsewhere, I could I could read the reports from the pool reporters and write and, and then add that uh, to my story. OK. All right. So mm -hmm. like that was the whole idea. Mm -hmm. But there were two situations that turned me off about the whole thing. And I wouldn't say turn me off. It, it, it turned me off. I ain't even gonna hold you. So the first thing was, uh, it was 2012. Obama was up for re-election and he was going against Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney had just visited this all-black school in Philadelphia. Um, and then like the next day or so, I was in the pool or, or like I was in the press briefing room and I raised my hand. I asked Jay Carney, who was the press secretary at the time, what is Obama's strategy for helping black America when, you know, given what Mitt Romney's trying to do in terms of appealing to black voters? And Jay Carney, you know, he was rapping on and on and on. He, he had like a word salad, but nothing really came out. So I was like, huh, OK, all right. And even before that, like I was in grad school. Mind you, you know, I was a sophomore in college when Obama got elected. GW's right there by the White House. And mind you, I didn't run to the White House because I was working that night in the gym. Mm -hmm. But all my friends ran down to the White House mm -hmm. come inauguration time. Mm -hmm. Now, mind mm -hmm. you, at the time, you know, I was partying hard. Mm -hmm. I didn't make it to inauguration, but everybody else did. They was out there in the cold at five o'clock mm -hmm. in the morning mm -hmm. waiting for it. Right. Mm -hmm. And like during like during the Obama era, everybody wanted to be like Obama. Brothers cutting their locks. Wow. Brothers getting suited and booted. Mm -hmm. Any club you went to in D.C. during the Obama era, mm -hmm. you could not wear shoes. You could not wear jeans. You had to, wow. you had to wear suits. Wow. That's it was. Matter of fact, wow. gentrification, mm -hmm. gentrification in D.C. erupted during the Obama era because, you, because, mind you, it's the federal government. The federal government, the NGOs, the nonprofits, 
white, black, Chinese, Indian, whoever, they're all coming to D.C. for a piece of the pie. So a lot of people, and let's not get it twisted, you got black gentrifiers too, because mm. the class thing. Yeah. And a lot of them came during the Obama era, either as students who stayed mm-hmm. or as people who wanted a piece of the pie when they came in. Mm. So that's the context of the time that I'm in, where mm-hmm. I'm sitting in these press pool briefings, these press briefings, and I'm listening to Jay Carney talk on and on and on, but not really say anything that eases my soul. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, right, because mind you, 2011, 2012, I graduated college, go straight to grad school. This is during um, uh, 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 Arab Spring, when they took down Gaddafi, when the whole Syria is falling down. I got white libertarians schooling me, John, like talking about, well, you know, Obama's not really a liberal. Obama's a moderate. Obama mm. is closer to Bush than people, <laughs> you know. And I'm thinking like, dang, like, I'm not as well-read as I thought. Right. Because, you know, and even like in 08, mm-hmm. my good man was talking to this white Republican. He was like, man, he's only getting in the office because he's black, da 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 And mind you, on the surface, you know, it's, it, it's, it's sort of like, all right, like, that sounds crazy, but at the same time, you know, there's some truth to it in the sense that, you know, Obama and this whole thing about hope, hope is the worst thing that you can give a people who don't have anything in terms of material wealth or, or stable situation. Because Obama got people like Jeezy writing songs. He had rappers yeah. voting for First time mm-hmm. he had people coming out, people all across Black America. They had two photos in their house: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. white Jesus <laughs> yeah, and <fact>. Obama. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. listen. So when I went to that White House press pool and Jay mm-hmm. Carney is just wrapping his head off, not saying nothing, that was the first thing. The second thing was was when I was on pool duty. I went to pool duty, and mind you, right, at certain times in pool duty, they don't let you get access to Obama or any other president. So oftentimes, for the most part, we might be getting out of the van. We walk, you know, behind them. We get to see what they're doing, this, this, that, and the third. But there might be other times, like at Camp David, where Obama would go into a, a back room or go into this big building. And then... And then we as pool reporters would stay in the van. And then, and then for like two hours, we would stay in the van or stay in the cafeteria where somebody would feed us lines. Like, okay, over the next over the last two hours, this happened, that happened. But it's like, hold on now. Right. If I can't see it for myself, then why would I believe you? Right. Why would you expect me to say that this is what happened as a pool reporter if I didn't see it? Mm. So that was the second thing. That mm-hmm. turned me off about the whole situation. But mind you, I went on and on and on until 2014. And in 2014, I was given two choices because by that time, I had gotten very deep into the grassroots reporting. Mm-hmm. By 2014, I was with the informer for two years, getting more assignments, getting more acclimated to D.C. politics and grassroots stuff, going into the trenches reporting that I was really rejecting assignments for the White House press pool, you know, mm-hmm. and then at a certain point, I had to make a choice. You know, mm-hmm. somebody, I ain't going to say their name. They was telling me like, hey, like, 
This isn't good for your career. You keep missing this and that, da 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 da. You need to make a choice because this is your career we're talking about. And that day I was like, you know what, man? This is my last press pool. I ain't going to do this no more. Let me just go on and do the local reporting. Mm -hmm. And it worked out, man. You know, so that's my yeah. that's what happened, man. You know. No, nah, no, nah, that's 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 um that's amazing because like a lot of people, I mean, well, that shows integrity for one, right? Um, and a lot of <laughs> that's what and a lot of journalism that we read now, that's what is lacking. You know what I'm saying? Um, being principled, uh, you know, it's whenever, whenever, okay. So whenever you were, you know, just like kind of, I guess whenever you started the, the, you know, uh, job with being a press pool reporter and then, you know, when you began uh, working for uh, Washington Informer, um being around politics this way like that had to be like a crash course in political education for you like like as far as being that close did you learn a lot as far as you know how this political system like really works i learned that we're all human beings mm. and i learned that you can't be starstruck as a journalist mm -hmm. You know, because uh, even like my first year out of grad school and, you know, just even talking to you and members are coming back because I had a whole summer program. Somebody, you know, some good old white folk, quote unquote, they funded <laughs> they funded this summer program for me to attend at American University where mm -hmm. like for a month I got on the set of Meet the Press with with Tim Russert mm -hmm. and like Tim Russert, you know, I came up in the house, my father big into politics like mm -hmm. any Liberian man that's all they do they get in the circle and they talk about politics and maybe mm -hmm. soccer mm -hmm. so every Sunday my father watching meet the press McLaughlin group and by the age of 17 I get to meet Tim Russer you mm -hmm. see what I'm saying like mm -hmm. I meet this man maybe like a year and a half before he passes away and I meet this man and then I met him in 06 because we on the set of meet the press by 2011, I get to ask his son a question, Luke Russert, because Luke mm -hmm. Russert is on the stage at GW in one of the buildings. And I'm asking him, I'm looking like, I'm talking to him like, listen, like, journalism is hard to get inside. How do you feel being the son of a journalism legend and you got it easy like this? And at the time, Hillary Clinton's daughter, Chelsea, was also working at NBC. So I'm asking him like, bro, like, mm -hmm. How is it that y'all get to get these jobs, but journalists out here who are hungry for jobs, they got to work and what's the state of the game looking like like that? And I'm only paraphrasing the question because mm -hmm. it's like, that's what, that's my mindset at the time, you know? Mm -hmm. And then he couldn't really answer the question again, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so mm -hmm. there's a theme here. I'm asking questions and they just not give me what I need, right? Mm -hmm. So in terms of your question, I learned that we're all human beings and I learned that Politics is a smokescreen for ego mm. because people get into these positions and oftentimes it's about power and less so about helping people. Mm. And when it comes to black people, it's very dangerous because as a reporter, especially, you have two choices. One choice being sacrificing who you are as a person to rise through the ranks or taking a position of power within yourself where you can tell the truth and you can ostracize yourself to a certain extent in order to get the real answers 
and take the and, and, and take the veil off the devil, so to speak. Right, right. Yeah, that's yeah, that's deep. Um, you know, moving into uh, you know, the future, we have different ways of getting out information, like even such as like podcasts, uh, um, you know, we're in the di digital age and, and things are, are, you know, going wherever they go. Like it's, you know, one thing about technology is once you let it out the bag, it's there forever. Oh, and, yeah. um, moving forward in the digital age, uh, what challenges and opportunities in your opinion does, you know, these new ways of getting information out what what challenges and opportunities uh do they present and especially uh coming from uh pan-african paradigm and also well actually that first and i'll and i'll ask what a follow-up after this but i kind of want to lean into the idea of now journalism from an african-centered perspective no doubt so and I think I'm hearing your question correctly, right? So, well, just as far as, you know, well, I'll rephrase it. Um, just what? How do you see the role of journalism evolving in the digital age, and whether it's good or bad? Uh, being a part of that evolution, seeing it evolve, where do you see it going, and how? And I guess how does one, uh, especially being African centered, use it to his advantage? No, no doubt. So journalism is much more open now. You know, anybody for better or worse can be a journalist. Uh, there's a lot of underground information, you know, in a lot of countries, they even go as far as cutting off the internet because it's just too open at this point. Mm -hmm. And that's a very good opportunity for us Pan-Africanists to connect all across the globe. You know, you really don't have to leave your living room in order to connect with a brother or a sister from Colombia, uh, Brazil, uh, the Caribbean, South Africa, Mozambique, so forth and so on. Uh, at the very same time, it's dangerous in the sense that um, it's really made us lazy as a people in the sense that, you know, we depend wholeheartedly on the internet to, for to forge connections. And the literacy pieces is also missing as well. Uh, we as African people, with our over-dependence on the internet, we have a surface level understanding of the issues that we're covering, hmm. you know, so the Internet should augment our reporting. It shouldn't replace it. And as a journalist, I'm often very fearful about um, just very fearful about the lack of literacy and the quality of writing that has diminished among, you know, and I'm not going to say all journalists. I have met young journalists who are learning the craft, mm -hmm. but I say that in the aggregate, is very dangerous in the sense that the quality of writing can be further diminished with our over-reliance on the internet and just different mediums because writing is king. Once you write, you can articulate so much more through the written word than through video. Video gets it out quicker, of course, and people are much more in tune with the video. But when you write it, 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 it and I just see the books behind you, you know, those books, a lot of them, those books been around for decades, centuries, and they'll be around for a whole lot, whole for a whole lot longer. Same thing with the newspapers. Mm -hmm. Once it's written, it's real. Yeah. Videos don't really allow people to study deeply. You get a little bit, mm -hmm. but when you write, 
you know, that's the master journalist, you know, the master reporter, somebody who's able to write and able to collect information and synthesize it. And a lot of these people, you know, they 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 have the title of journal or they give themselves the title of journalist, but they're not really journalists because they don't put the the effort into being well researched and into being balanced. Balanced in the sense that, of course, you have your political leanings, but balanced in the sense that you are presenting information soberly so mm. that people because your first priority is the people, you know, the people who you are informing. You got to make sure that they are equipped with the information. Of course, you know yourself and you know your political leanings. But that does not excuse you from telling the truth at all. Right. You know, and, right. and, 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 we, and we got too much going on out there where people are just saying anything. Mm. And one more thing. Where and I understand the reason why we feel the need to combat ADOS and FBA, but they're gonna be there. Mm -hmm. ADOS and FBA has been around since we got off them boats, man. Yeah, there right. people for, for as many people who has wanted to go back home. There's been people who was talking about, hey, listen, we good here, we Americans. They always gonna be here, mm -hmm. you know. So it's not necessarily about fighting them and responding to everything they gotta say. It's more so about using the pen and using these mediums as a way to organize people and inform them because it's mm. about producing something that will inform people instead of just being reactionary. And that's why I'm at with it, Frank. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just even to kind of, you know, as far as the written word, and I do feel like I do agree with you. It is the most powerful medium. Um, I think one of the problems is with, thing you know I, i'm not just necessarily podcasts but people with you know youtube channels and uh, just how they you know people that choose to get information out that way is like you said right um in a lot of cases it is it is uh it's somewhat surface level uh, in some cases it's totally wrong and false and just because a person speaks uh with an uh, an authoritative uh, sound in their voice a lot of t a lot of people will, you know, believe them. Um, whenever you are, whenever you are reading real journalistic work, um, I think it, I think it, it 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 inspires you to research that a little bit more, right? I think sometimes with a lot of a lot of podcasts or a lot of videos and, um. People may watch it. People may be entertained, but I don't know if it necessarily always, you know, always inspires someone to um, to research that said topic anymore, you know, than what they what they got from the internet. Uh, well, I mean, what they got from the show um, with Wilds of Dome TV. I, I just strive to I strive to have these type of conversations, um, whether they are popular or not. Because I find I find that they're important, and this space is really saturated with people who I don't always feel are genuine, um, and what they're doing. You know what I mean? And um, I think I think in and think in order to be good at this, whether it is uh, you know having a having a podcast in this format or, or writing. Uh, I think there is a certain level of 
ethics and sincerity that have to be involved in you have to care about the stuff that you're writing. You have to feel, you have to, you know, not necessarily like, like you stated before, like you, you have been presented um, situations where you had to, you know, choose which direction you wanted to go. You know what I mean? And um, your character was like, nah, I'm not trying to go this mainstream route at this moment because I see a lot of, I see a lot of bull in it. You know what I'm saying? And, um, I definitely appreciate just the fact that you were even able to do that, right? Because black media, all forms of black, yeah, I know, I, I can imagine, man, black media, all forms of black media, um, when done right, are extremely important. You know what I'm saying? Um, the same way we've seen, uh, you know, we, we've seen some of the worst regimes in world history use propaganda as a tool to change the minds of the people to make them pro-destruction of another people. We are just striving to make our people aware of what the real issues are, um, the history, help orient them cu culturally. And again, I salute you um, for you know all the work that you have done and that you are continuing to do. Um, you wrote for those who don't know, you wrote a book, uh, Babylon Be Still, um, uh, how a journalist educator adopted an African centered worldview. And we're even though we're talking, uh, a lot about this now, you know, you go into obviously more detail in the book. So I definitely, you know, want everybody to the link will be in the description. Everybody, you know, cop the book. Um, it's dope. It's, it's inspiring. And I mean, I think there's jewels that we all could take from it to help us better at what we do. Um, with that said, uh, what, what would you say inspired you to write, uh, Babylon Be Still? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, uh, Babylon Be Still is a compilation of essays, you know, so I, I I've been writing, man, you know, upon graduating college, mm -hmm. Undergrad, you know, I've I've been writing here and there, you know, essays. So mm -hmm. that these are these were essays that were written from like 2011 up to about 2020, mm -hmm. and around 2018, I just started compiling these works, all while writing some more, and the works really document my changing in philosophy, lessons that I learned, and for each thing that you see. Um, you might have seen, you know, me angry at the time about something or just very passionate. I would say from 2013 on, uh, that's where you see a lot of my metamorphosis as a Pan-Africanist, you know, mm -hmm. and a lot of it just came from channeling the anger that I had, you know, being on Facebook and other social media accounts, writing what I would write and then friends and family pushing back, you know, friends and mm -hmm. family who who might have known me as a different Sam. Mm -hmm. And just looking at what I got going on now, they question it, they ridicule it, or they might just not agree. You know, I've gotten unfollowed, I've gotten blocked, I've gotten a lot of pushback on a lot of ideals. I've been, I've, I've gotten called a radical, um, you know, a lot of things. Cause you know, in Babylon B still speaks to that, you know, mm -hmm. because, you know, going to GW, Again, you know, it was a cultural and class schisms right. that I had seen, 
And, you know, I don't regret going there at all. I think that, you know, because I'm going back there this weekend, matter of fact, to speak with um, some past scholarship winners and people who are on scholarships now. You know, getting that scholarship exposed me to a lot, and I'm very grateful for it. And I think that it was part of my path in just embracing my nationalism, you know, understanding what nation building entails. Um, and, you know, that's exactly why I wrote the book. The book was a pivot from arguing people down to actually focusing on the work of what nation building is, because that's the only thing that's going to get us out. And, you know, to your point earlier about just really caring and being part of the media, the media is one part of our nation. You know, mm -hmm. that's our that's that that's one part of our nation, you know, and, you know, people who are inside this game for egotistical reasons, they depend on the situation to never change in order for them to keep to keep doing what they're doing. It's just like, you know, a doctor who prescribes medicines that the that the pharmaceutical companies want you to prescribe. It's just like the nonprofit industrial complex. They all depend on the problem never going away. But us as journalists who are truly about the work, we, we don't just do journalism. You know, we might right. be in the education space. We might already have families. We might be devising plans to repatriate or to absolve ourselves of this system. It's all part of a bigger picture in terms of nation building. Mm -hmm. So this book represented a shift for me in my mindset and just reaffirming myself and getting real comfortable with the fact that there's no turning back for me, that like I'm a nation builder in every aspect of the word. I do my best in establishing my nobility and building up my family and working in black owned spaces, African centered spaces and just affirming my identity. And it goes beyond just talking about it. It's about being about it. And that's what this book affirms for me. Indeed. Indeed. Um, being from uh, Liberia, uh, uh, can you talk about some of the, well, can you talk about the origin of Liberia and the circumstances that led to Liberia's creation? Man, awesome question, bro. Like, I enjoy talking about this, and this is why I enjoy Pan-Africanism, because mm -hmm. history is connected. So Liberia, Liberia as an, as an, as an independent, sovereign nation, was founded in 1847 with the Declaration of Independence that the Black repatriates had created. By 1822, that's when they started going over there, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the American Colonization Society was, was an entity created by religious Christian white folks. And this was during a time of slave uprisings, you had the Haitian Revolution, which pretty much changed the economic um, scoreboard in the Western Hemisphere. Had it not been for the Haitian Revolution, we would all be speaking French right now on this side. Mm. But what the Haitian Revolution did was take the French out of the equation. Mm -hmm. And once Thomas Jefferson and whoever else saw that happen, and they saw other slave uprisings happening in the United States, they doubled down on their efforts to lock down this system to make it harder for us to rebel. And part of that was expelling freed African-Americans or freed Africans on this side. And that's where the American Colonization Society came in. So by 1822, we went over there. 
and for about 20 years or so were under a white governorship. And then at a certain point, you know, they're thinking like, well, listen, like we want to start running our own things. And then they come together for this Declaration of Independence. Um, you had Hillary Teagues, brother named Johnson, a lot of other founding fathers and mothers of mom in Liberia. Mm-hmm. And with that, you know, and Liberia itself, it, it's an interesting place because it took on so many characteristics politically of the American system, but the spirit of Pan-Africanism was still there in the sense that up until the independence of Ghana, Liberia and Ethiopia were the two nominally free countries on the African continent. So a lot of our leadership in the Western hemisphere, our black leadership looked to Liberia as a beacon of hope. And Liberia served its purpose in that sense, despite the schisms between the repatriates and the indigenous people, it still served that purpose in the sense that, once again, a lot of our people looked to Mama Liberia and they even visited there to get some things done over the years. You know, even W.E.B. Du Bois, who I'm not going to say I loathe, but who I look to as a guy who finally got his act together after doing Garvey Dirty. Yeah, He was in Liberia for a while. Garvey had aspirations of being in Liberia. As a matter of fact, had Garvey's program gone through, he would have set up a plot of land in the place where my patrilineal line comes from. Wow. So, yeah, which is very, very crucial to me. Like, And mm-hmm. that's why, you know, I'm a Garveyite. Mm-hmm. That's part of the reason. I, like, I don't think it's by happenstance that I have adopted Garveyism, you know, mm-hmm. because... The whole repatriation, self-determination aspect really spoke to me. But in terms of Liberia's history, it came out of a desire for our people to go back home, but also for the U.S. government to quash any aspirations of our people on the U.S. side to rise up. Yeah. And and so let's let's kind of stay a little. uh, I want to stay. a little bit around the time of the formation of Liberia and and when we began to uh well and the ACS and when we began to go uh back go, we'll go over there all right so from things that I've read um I have a few books I have a few books on Liberia, Liberia. I need some more but uh I'll find them in a few um uh-huh. but but the ACS, right? Um, a lot of times, history will 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 paint them as um, you know benevolent, you know, white men who were attempting to help black people go back home. And when you read some of the history of Liberia in the beginning, um, many of the people that were in ACS refused to let correct me if I'm wrong, um, refused to let uh, their repatriates run uh, or have control over, you know, what was going on or the natives, right? Like they were, um, and and so it, it, it's like, in a sense, they acted as many colonizers, you know what I mean? Um, if you can, I want to speak on a little bit more on the, you know, 
who the ACS really was and how they, I guess, whenever, how they, uh, you know, approached uh, Liberia uh, in the, in the beginning. All right, no doubt. So the ACS itself was white owned and white ran. It was a, it was a private institution in a sense separated from the U S government, but you also had the black repatriates. You had the black repatriates from the United States, but you also had black repatriates called Congos. Congos being um, those who were enslaved and brought from the continent, but turned back around sort of kind of after the slave trade got uh, made illegal. Mm -hmm. So instead of going across the Atlantic, they just went down the coast to Liberia. So you have those classes of people and then you have the indigenous folks. Mm -hmm. Now, to your point about the class schism and about the caste system, that is absolutely correct. And with some nuance as well. Mm -hmm. So politically, yes, uh, English uh, was a language that was institutionalized in Liberia, of course. Um, Americo-Liberians, I don't like calling them that. I call them repatriates and their descendants. They ran the Liberian government, you know, for the most part. But at the very same time, the repatriates and the indigenous folks, they united around certain issues, mm -hmm. such as the abolishment of the slave trade. And then even, you know, if you look at Liberia today, Liberia is 95% indigenous. Mm -hmm. That tells you something. That tells you that there was intermingling, intermarrying between cultures. Mm -hmm. There was some, you know, even on my father's side, I was told uh, one of my ancestors repatriated from New Jersey and he wow. married into the Gribo tribe. That's what I was told by my grandmother's little sister. Mm -hmm. All right. But for the most part, I have indigenous blood, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I got I got like two. I got like two tribes in my blood, maybe three. I was mm -hmm. told as of recently. So I say all of that to say that you're right. But if you look at it in the bigger picture, that system was set up so that the U.S. and other nations, for that matter, could be a proxy mm. on the continent. Mm -hmm. Mind you, the U.S. didn't recognize Liberia's sovereignty until either close to the Civil War or after the Civil War. So for about 20 years or so, the U.S. didn't even recognize Liberia at all. Wow. But the U.S., long after that, had used Liberia as a proxy for resources and for geopolitical strategic positioning, especially during the world wars. Mm. Because you had Germany enroaching on Liberia's territory, mm -hmm. as well as the other European countries, the French and the British. So, of course, the Liberian nation... Uh, finding itself, you know, pigeonholed is going to look to the U.S. And oftentimes, the U.S. And, the, and, 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 and Liberia has maintained that relationship. Now, that relationship, in a sense, has perpetuated the caste system that you spoke about, right? And Liberia's first indigenous president was President um, Samuel K. Doe. But he came into power through violent means. Mm -hmm. He was actually, you know, quiet as kept backed by the U.S. when he toppled um, the Tolbert government. And William Tolbert was on the verge 
of institutionalizing some changes in the government. It was him and William Tubman. William Tubman being the longest serving uh, president of Liberia. He was mm -hmm. like the president of Liberia's golden age. You know, and he was like a, a, a founding member of the OAU, Haile uh, Selassie and Kwame Nkrumah's, you know, partner, you know, to some extent. So those two men, Liberia was on the verge of making big changes in the government because they were institutionalizing some slow changes. You had, you know, Liberians of indigenous blood coming into the government, you know, so change was happening incrementally. But then Samuel K. Doe's presidency, um, in a sense, hindered all of that. And mind you, he was the first indigenous president, but the way he came in was through violent means. And that was because Tolbert was embracing socialism and communism. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't, and he was, and, 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 and his rhetoric was getting more, um, was getting more Pan-African. Mm -hmm. He was embracing the Chinese and the Russians more. So the CIA took him out. Wow. You know, if you hear about a legend among Liberians, they often talk about that white hand, the white hand that Tolbert's wife saw in the presidential mansion. You know, so they so every time in any community throughout the world, whenever black folks are fighting black folks, mm -hmm. we always pin it down to that mm -hmm. without thinking about that white hand mm -hmm. that's in the back right. that Tobin's wife says she saw. You see? Right. So it's always a white man and white woman in the back pulling the strings. And that's what happens to Liberia. Yeah, and I mean it happened and I mean, as we know, it especially during African uh, liberation movements of the 50s and 60s, there's always a white hand somewhere. You know what I mean? Um, uh, as far as, you know, there to quell or kill and, and you know, have these coups and, 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 and you know, and they'll, they'll sit back and say, hey, you know, we had nothing to do with that or they might not even ever get implicated by anybody that, you know, doesn't actually research what's happening. One one person that was in Liberia who um, is an extremely important figure, um, if you can uh, speak on him, uh, because I read that Edward Blyden um, was, you know, when he was there, he was one that was, you know, really working hard towards facilitating, um, you know, that initial relationship between um, the natives and uh, the repatriates. Oh yeah, it was him, John B. Russworm. You know he did. He you no, know, he did quite a lot. To be honest with you, I'm not quite as knowledgeable mm -hmm. about him as I should be. But what I will say is that he represents that era when a lot of our people were looking to Liberia and they were leveraging Liberia's position. You know, in order to um, build that relationship between Africa and the Western Hemisphere. You know, so that much I can say, but mm -hmm. William, but Edward Wilmot Blyden was definitely, uh, you know, doing his thing as far as Liberia is concerned. Yeah, and and, uh, and so, the, all right. When we think, and you know, when we think about Liberia, like, is there is it is its affiliation with the United States the reason why? it, you know, wasn't colonized the way, you know, a lot of other African nations were? Oh, no, it was colonized. And okay. people, they want to deny that. They, okay. people, 
people for the longest. We've denied that, but I see mm-hmm. a renaissance happening among mm-hmm. our Liberian people where mm-hmm. we can at least talk about that. Like mm-hmm. we 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 were colonized, you know. Okay. Uh, I, I I matter of fact, like I don't identify as a Liberian for that reason. I identify as a Gribo and a Basa man because those were the nations that were there before the borders mm-hmm. were drawn. Wow, you understand? Okay. Like mm-hmm. I don't Liberia because politically. Liberia is not ours. Mm-hmm. You know, Liberia is still an outpost of the United States. And you see it even with the U.S. Africa summit that happened about a year ago, the way that Biden, President Biden, pulled George Manawea to the side, right, had this private meeting. And with the Liberian elections coming up, the second round coming up, there's a lot at stake in terms of the U.S.'s position on the African continent. The U.S has been going very hard over the last few years or so to rebuild what President Trump has lost in terms of relations. Not to say that relations were always good, but it's that Trump was that guy that nobody wanted talking because he always kept it 100 with everybody. Mm -hmm. But ever since Trump got out of office, the Biden administration has been doing its hardest to rebuild relationships. So with Russia and China coming in and, you know, doing their soft diplomacy, the United States is attempting to do the same. And they're looking to Liberia as that beacon once again, because Liberia and the U.S. have always had that relationship. So as far as colonization, it's even in the word American Colonization Society. It right. was for that reason. And if you look at his charter, his charter, part of it was to spread Christianity throughout Liberia. Mm. And a lot of people who came to Liberia, black people, they came there as missionaries. Mm. They came there as missionaries. Wow. Collins is a name that is Irish. Right. And if I recall correctly from a family reunion, I think that that name was bestowed upon us, for lack of a better word, bestowed upon us by some Irish missionaries. You know what I'm saying? Wow. It's that deep, man. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like it's. And I'm glad you, you know, corrected me there because we have a tendency to sometimes you, when we look at Liberia and its creation, right? We look at it as, I mean, it's easy to look at it as, okay, this was a nation that was created, you know, where so-called African-Americans can go back home to Africa. But like you, but like you, you, stated American colonization society, this is, are there actual discussions, you know, with Liberians today that look at themselves and, or I guess, look at the state of Liberia and say, hey, man, you know, are we still a colony of the United States? Oh, yeah, there's a lot of discussions. Um, See Patrick Burroughs. Uh, he's a he's he's a um, he's a he's a Liberian author of Jamaican descent. Mm-hmm. He writes about that. Uh, very powerful brother. I think he taught at Howard University in D.C. at one point. C. Patrick Burroughs. There's a lot of talk about that among the among the new generation, mm-hmm. and you know I say even previous generations because you know at at um at the University of Liberia you had different student groups set up, you know that 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 took on a Pan African flair. 
-hmm. you know, and like even the government was looking at that. The U.S. government especially was looking at that like, okay, well, we need to quell this. Mm -hmm. There were, you know, there, there were movements within the CIA to quell to quell um, what they called socialism and communism, because this is all Cold War, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so whereas you know Kwame Nkrumah and others were taking on certain positions, you know William Tubman uh, took on a position of his own, and people on the outside they look at that because it's a bit more nuanced than what it is, you know. Because even mm -hmm. I, at one point, mm -hmm. I looked at Tubman as like a, a a traitor in a sense. And mm -hmm. it sort of kind of was because mm -hmm. Tubman, you know, Tubman was a Firestone lawyer mm -hmm. and Firestone was that company that was taking rubber, rubber from, you know, from Liberia. So with Tubman going against Kwame Nkrumah's whole United Africa concept and talking about, well, we need to maintain our independent countries, you know, on the surface, it looks like, okay, they're doing the bidding of the United States. But even with that, that came because the United States twisted Liberia's hand a bit, you know, in terms of economics. Because mm. Liberia was in a position where it really couldn't do for itself. It had resources, but you still need to be able to, you know, produce those resources and change them, change from raw materials into whatever you need. You still, mm. you know, mm -hmm. it got off on the wrong foot when it was founded. It was in debt for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And the United States came in, you know, provided a radio tower, provided ships, different, different kinds of resources. And whoever pays the piper plays the tune by the end of the day. Right. So anytime they need you, they're going to call you up. Right. You know? And that's where it came in, geopolitically, maintaining those interests. When 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 you are uh, speaking of, you know, like uh, Nkrumah and uh, other uh, uh, leaders around that time who had socialist and communist leanings and we have the Casablanca group. The other group was actually called the Monrovia group, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, um, and yeah. so, and so was, was that, um, and, but like you said, that was more of the U S attempting to flex the power that it had, uh, to be able to, I guess, combat that, um, you know, the growing uh, tide of, you know, socialist leaning uh, leaders in uh, Africa, like what, so that Monrovia group, the leader at that time was, it wasn't necessarily a thing that he agreed with the United States approach. It was just at the point though, it was, was it more, like you said, a point where they really didn't have a whole lot of options. So yes and no. Mm -hmm. And the reason why the primary reason why he was opposed to uniting Africa was because uh, Africa is very diverse. Of course, we got, you know, our Bantu people and then you got your Arabs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Tubman was looking at the king of Morocco like, listen, man, we blickety black over here. I don't know if we want to be over there with the Arabs, mm -hmm. you know, right. like that's right. just the reality, you know. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, because Liberia has a Negro clause. That clause saying that um, citizenship is confined only to black people. Wow. You know, yeah, that's a feature of Liberia that 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 a lot of people don't know about, and it speaks to its history mm -hmm. and what it was created as. So even with the whole 
dark cloud of American colonization over it is still this beacon of Pan-Africanism and repatriation because mm -hmm. of that Negro clause. Mm -hmm. You being a black person, me being a black person, we can repatriate there and become citizens, mm -hmm. you know? So I think Tubman wanted to maintain that. Mm -hmm. And that to a degree really persuaded him against the whole United Africa concept. In the U.S., they just added on to that, you know, by pretty much, you know, enticing him to look the other way. Yeah. And, you know, and Selassie was in it, too, as well, you know, but Selassie. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Selassie's viewpoint was more so about just like by the end of the day, we got to unite no matter how it looks, you know, yeah. Um now, mind you, you know, you got a lot of people, you know, and once again, this comes from like not reading. This comes from having uh, having a, 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 a having a black and white view of history. They, they, they look at Selassie as a traitor, you know, sort of kind of dictator, you know. But Selassie, like, it's very hard being the only independent nations. Right, right, right. Very hard. Ethiopia and Liberia, right? And even Ethiopia was getting picked off because Ethiopia... And Abyssinia are different. Abyssinia was what was what Ethiopia was at one point. And Abyssinia extended, if I recall correctly, all the way to Yemen. Mm. But over hundreds and thousands of years, they're just getting picked off. Right. Colonized. Right. Not even colonized, but just marginalized. Mm -hmm. So as a leader, if it's only one of y'all, you got to make concessions. You got to balance the tag because... It's only you out there. Mm -hmm. So I think Selassie at the time was just thinking like, listen, like it, we got to unite. Mm -hmm. Even if it's just the OAU, everybody got their own nation. We ain't sovereign together. As long as we're united, that's what it is. And that's why I actually am of the understanding and belief that that whole concept that Kwame Nkrumah was trying to get to, that's on us to do now. You know, I don't really, I don't really, you know, hold on to like what happened back then is more so about what are we doing now like right. are we are we advancing that cause yeah yeah no most definitely and i guess that leads to my next question um i was i remember might have been a, a year ago uh when i a year or two ago whenever i had uh um bought a few books on liberia and i had begun uh, to read them and uh then you know sometimes you know after you read something you'll find something on YouTube to watch, you know, to kind of get a visual, right? And um, I, uh, it was a, it was a, it was a, a brother being interviewed in Liberia and he was a, he's an MC, right? He's a, he, he, he was a rapper and um, he, um, but he was using, you know, his music to promote Pan-Africanism. Oh, brother Pusa? It might've been. I'm not sure. That's my man. That's my man. Shout out to Brother Pucci, man. Yeah, yeah. It might, oh, it might have been. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, I, and so I remember it was a sister that was um, that was uh, interviewing him. Uh, but, you know, to hear, like, to just to hear, like, that was his mission, I, I thought, like, was a pretty powerful sentiment, um, especially, you know, just understanding um, what, United States has done to a lot of us mentally and politically, right? And um, so in 2023, what would you say, how, 
in Liberia, the idea of Pan-Africanism. I know it's also it's already a reflection of Pan-Africanism from its creation and its inception, but with the people, right? How would you say the people, the idea of not only Pan-Africanism, but pushing our Pan-Africanism forward, how would you say that, that the people uh, respond to that idea? I mean, I think the war set us back a bit, the mm -hmm. Civil War. If you will, can, can you get on to the Civil War a little bit? Because I, you know, I don't, I don't know much about that that aspect of Liberia yeah, history. That that was like, man, the Civil War. The U.S. they 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 kept that going and going and going. Like they act, they had actually known about the Civil War popping off. Uh, Charles Taylor. Um, so Samuel K. Doe, when he came into office, he was the first Indigenous Liberian president. Uh, of the Kron people, the Kron native group. And so it got from a point where for 100 years or so, it was repatriates getting government jobs and things like this. And now it was Samuel K. Doe and, and then instead of everybody getting jobs, it's just Kron people getting jobs. So, so you still had that tribalism. And tribalism mm -hmm. is something that Liberians are dealing with in this day and age, you know, we are very divided among tribal lines and Liberians are, when it comes to the biggest sector in Liberia is the government mm -hmm. because everybody wants to work in the government and oftentimes it's not for altruistic means, it's more so to line their pockets and industries aren't really thriving as they should in Liberia. People are making do, but the four million or so who live in Liberia, they they there's a there's an infrastructure that they're still trying to bounce back from um in the post-Civil War era. And and um the and the whole Ebola epidemic didn't help either. Mind you, uh they talk about these monkeys and whatever else, but you gotta keep in mind there was a US lab that had the Ebola virus in it. Mm. That was in Liberia mm. and it got let loose somehow, some way, mm. you know, and that's, and you know, that's, that, that's not, that's not conspiracy. That's fact. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Liberia has tried to bounce back. Uh, to my knowledge, there is, there is a UNIA chapter in Liberia. Mm -hmm. The UNIA has always had a presence in Liberia, you know, always. And um, the president general of one of the UNIAs, Michael Duncan, um, if I recall correctly, his sister is the first lady of Liberia. So, you know, Pan-Africanism is alive, but it could be revived more, you know. But I think at this point, Liberians are focused more on repairing Liberia mm -hmm. and, and, and improving the situation more so than recognizing themselves as part of the diaspora, so to speak. You know, and I think another hindrance is our <clears throat> is our over dependence on the U.S. government. A lot mm -hmm. of us look to the U.S. government as a savior. Mm -hmm. So when you have corruption in the Liberian government, there's often talk about, well, we need to bring the U.S. in here to get rid of these corrupt politicians. But it's like if you don't y'all don't know what comes with that. Mm. Matter of fact, y'all don't even know that the U.S. government has a hand in those politicians being here in the very first place. They, those, those politicians have an interest in 
the U.S. government has an interest in certain politicians being in power because it's all about that's what democracy is about. Democracy is not about they always float that word around democracy, democracy, when in fact we don't live in the we don't live in a democracy. We live in a Republican style of government where we cede power to representatives who go behind closed doors and make decisions for us on our behalf. Mm. And then when you talk about democracy, it's not really democracy in the sense where everybody is equal and we all share power. It's democracy in the sense that, once again, these leaders are handpicked in order to siphon resources from the people to give to the colonizers. And that's going to continue because you got a lot of because you got multinational corporations coming in. You know, they're taking steel. They're taking the iron ore, okay? Um, the, 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 the fish prices are fluctuating, you know? The economics is just not looking right right now. And, uh, and Liberians, it's not that they're not too focused on Pan-Africanism or there's no potential for it. It's just that right now, I think that the focus is on peace and it's on stay stabilizing the country. Yeah, but deep down inside, there's an overstanding of Liberia's Pan-African legacy. That uh, brings up something. Is there is the you know historically the fact that you mentioned that for a long time most of uh, the presidents were repatriates, right? Right. Is that something that? America pushed for as far as like an idea of maybe um, they felt that they could control those leaders or have more influence on those leaders more than they could uh, a native born Liberian? It's a good question. I, I wouldn't necessarily say so. I just think that's the way it was institutionalized at a certain point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of those repatriates, they were either, you know, what they call mulattoes anyway. So, oh, and mm -hmm. you know, the caste system, mm -hmm. it was it, it, it was color based as well as lineage based, you know, mm -hmm. to an extent. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I wouldn't say the U.S. necessarily pushed for it. I just think that at the time, that's the way that the system was set up, you know, because you even had um, indigenous folks, you know, and, and you hear stories about this. They might stay over a repatriate's house work for them and take on their last name. Mm -hmm. That's how a lot of our people got their last names, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. by, you know, like I said, working for um, repatriates and just sort of becoming part of their family. So yeah. that system was in there. I'm not going to say that the U.S., mm -hmm. they had a part to it, but I don't, you know, I'm not going to say that. Well, maybe they did, you know, maybe, mm -hmm. but I can't, I can't speak to whoever directly they yeah. had that impact. Yeah, no, I, I definitely understand. It's just a thought. Um, and, you know, you kind of, you also mentioned uh, as far as the relationships that the, uh, like uh, natives and, um, you know, repatriates began to develop, which is a beautiful thing and a beautiful example of, you know, Pan-Africanism and, and just uh, uh, even just a glimpse of, of how we could be on a global scale if you know we you know uh, just approach things from that from that idea and that viewpoint with you being um an excellent journalist and um somebody who has 
experience um, on many different forms of journalism and and different, you know, just someone who's been doing it as long as you've doing as long as you've been doing it, and someone who uh, is as skilled as you. Um, looking ahead, like what are your, uh, I guess, what were your goals? for your continued work in, uh, you know, journalism and activism? Uh, definitely. Uh, I don't necessarily call it activism. Mm -hmm. I, I, I like, I like as an organizer. Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. yeah. No. Cause you know why though? Activism sometimes is, it's like the watered down, um, yeah. you know, the corporate, uh, yeah. I, yeah. I feel you. I feel you. Yeah. They, they definitely co-opted that. <laughs> yeah. 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 I just, nah, I'm an organizer. <laughs> no so, doubt. No matter doubt, of no fact, doubt. you know, I'm part of a campaign <laughs> mm -hmm. for the United African States. So, you know, just organizing with a lot of young people and elders uh, mm -hmm. for the United African States. We got a presence in D.C., Baltimore, uh, D.C., Baltimore, Florida, Atlanta, Canada, parts of the continent, just really campaigning for United African States. So, you know, that's where I'm at right now with it. As far as journalism, just really... I just want to keep reporting and I want to, you know, represent people in my reporting and just really put to use my talents. Um, I had a chance to go to Senegal this past summer, you know, and I just want more opportunities to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely keep educating young people. And I would even also say uh, working on uh, shaping and molding the next generation of journalists, you know, mm -hmm. just to show, make sure that the craft is preserved. Mm -hmm. And to pretty much encourage young people to be on their own, and if not be on their own, write for a black-owned publication or make their own publications. You know, I think that we need to continue that legacy. And like I said, I'm very fearful about and very anxious about what the future holds for us, because literacy is something that, you know, between AI and social media and these ebooks and whatever else and videos. A lot of our young people aren't reading like they need to, and the yeah. writing isn't really up to par like it should be. You know, I do see some promise as well. Mm -hmm. So I, that's one thing I really do want to work on as well, just schooling young journalists. And so, and so when it comes to journalism, you do see being well read as part of the skill set you need to be a, a good writer? Of course, you know, mm -hmm. any craft you're in, you got to study, you know, mm -hmm. I want to be a scammer. I got to, I got to, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be a good scammer if I don't be around scammers and I'm yeah. not, you know, it's, it's the same thing with reading and writing. Like, mm -hmm. like you got to be able to like, 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 like I say it like this, bro, like, uh, the reason why writing stories mm -hmm. now oftentimes it might it might it might come hard to me depending on how how i want to organize the information mm -hmm. but the more you keep abreast of the news the easier it is to write about the news because mm -hmm. if something happens out there like say if you know another country gets a coup right mm -hmm. knowing what i know i could easily write a whole story about that because i'm well read Right. So, you know, journalism and writing in general requires that you read a lot, mm -hmm. that you have an interest in reading, that you have an interest in learning new words. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's 
it's it's that, and 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 you really got to put that in young people from the minute they get out the womb. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. otherwise, by age seven, it gets a little hard. Yeah, you know that. You and one last thing, uh, I mean, that's a good point as far as an interest in expanding your vocabulary for whatever you're teaching and 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 showing young people, you know, the craft of journalism. How would you recommend that they what 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 type of things would you recommend them do to expand their uh, vocabulary and lexicon? Oh, yeah, definitely read mm-hmm. uh, when they're reading. They can circle words that they don't know. and Look it up. Use the mm-hmm. context clues. I would encourage young people to have their own journals, you know, write in it every day. If not a page, at least a paragraph. I would encourage parents to join in. Parents got to start reading with their kids. You know, pick up, go to the library, pick a book out, read it together, discuss it. They got to make reading a part of the lifestyle. You know, mm-hmm. you got to it, it's got to be something as fluid and as second nature as breathing. You mm-hmm. know, that's just what it is. You got to make a part of your liberty, you know, because otherwise it's just forced. Yeah, I agree. Do you, do you think that and this is not ever to knock anyone's situation because I, I mean, I understand all situations are different, but I feel like, you know, parents when they you know tell their children you need to read 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 and your kids don't ever really see you reading um i feel like you know that's it's not you're just kind of giving them a chore to do but if they see well like you said if reading if reading becomes a part of your life and they they see you know mom read they see dad read and they see you know okay all right and then you know They'll come around and they'll begin to look in your bookshelf. They'll be, you know, they'll be, you know, they'll come around and, and, and begin to, you know, ask questions about certain things. I mean, that's just what I I feel like if you're going to if we are going to tell our children um, reading is important, then I think it's definitely beneficial if they see you reading as well. Yeah, they got they got to have an example to follow, mm-hmm. you know, um, we need our own libraries in our houses. Uh, need reading time, right? Of course, uh, and you know, parents need to talk to kids about stuff about about topics that have meaning. Mm. You know, like and really build up their vocabulary. Like, talk to your kids from mm-hmm. a young age, mm-hmm. not about adult things, but you know, talk to them in full sentences. Mm-hmm. Ask them questions, right? Mm-hmm. Ask them meaningful questions that that will compel them. To engage in a conversation, mm-hmm. like really get their brain working. Mm-hmm. You know, I often come across a lot of young people uh, who are who are afraid to speak. You ask them a question, they say, mm-hmm. "I don't know." It's like you ain't even think about it yet. Like, mm-hmm. oh, that, that, you know, mm-hmm. what do you think you know, that comes just, from? I mean, that comes from being quieted at a young age. Mm-hmm. You know, they're being told they they they're being told to be seen and not heard or something like that, and you know. When they ask questions, parents might be impatient with them and tell them, you know, you don't, you don't got to ask that. Don't ask that. No. And it just stays with them for, for a long time. You got parents who might not be as engaged. And, you know, I'm not a parent. I don't judge. It's just mm-hmm. what I've been seeing and hearing. And, and, you know, and another thing is, like, again, parents might treat reading as a chore instead of instead of like as a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. But it has to be a lifestyle. You know, if you're not reading a paper. Or at least like when you're like watching TV, turn on the subtitles. Right. Have the kids read the mm-hmm. subtitles at least, you know, mm-hmm. like 
at the very least, or read read the signs. You know, when you're walking out and about on you know at, on the train system on the streets. Hey, what does that say? Mm-hmm. What is you know engage them in a conversation like that? What do you think that means? You know, mm-hmm. take them to a museum. Like we gotta we got to as people really make that a part of our lifestyle. Like that's just something that's very important. You know, without question. Um, what what do you think has because like you mentioned, you know, after re- Reconstruction, well, during Reconstruction, how literacy rates went up. Um, we also had, um, uh, you know, the formation before a little bit before then, uh, but even during that time of, you know, different HBCUs across the country. Exactly. Um, what would you attribute now to, you know, our... I hate to say it, but maybe our de- uh, as a whole, our decline in literacy and willingness to read. Because I, you know, I I've read different articles, and it's not just African people, but you know, our focus obviously is African people. But um, man, it's such a high percentage of people who, after high school or after college, don't don't ever pick up a book again. Um, oh, very like, true. what do you, what do you think is the, what's, what's, what do you think is the cause? What is the root? I mean, I think America in general is an, is an, is an anti-intellectual society. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of money to be made here and it's not in, it's not, it's not in, 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 in intellect, you know, for young people coming up, you can be an influencer. You can make videos, you know, that's what a lot of young people are talking about. You have a whole gaming industry now. People mm-hmm. people can watch you play games for hours mm-hmm. and you make money that way. Uh, so it's a lot of in, it's a lot of anti-intellectualism and media has taken over. You got Hollywood or Hollyweird, you know, a lot of celebritization. Uh, people depend on celebrities to be the arbiters of morality and to speak on issues, you know. So it's been a process that's been happening over many, many decades where where we have replaced the intellectuals of our society with with, with celebrities and people who, who who don't who don't who don't who don't hold a candle to to experts, but at the same time are given more leverage or more or, or more shine than they, than they are. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, one more point I want to make is our revolutionary culture has been used against us and lampooned to the very point where we where we celebrate criminal lifestyles. You mm. know, so like if people are reading, they might be reading books about criminal lifestyles. And mind you, that's a reflection partly, like I said before, that's a reflection of the society that was created around us during the 80s and so forth and so on. But at the same time, it is something that we have embraced wholeheartedly to our detriment. We have we we have embraced it as normal when in fact it should not be normal. And we got to get back to embracing, um, you know, uh, uh, um, parts of our liberty that were passed down to us from our parents and our grandparents. And a lot of where we are right now is because of the breakdown in the family. And part of that is a capitalistic society in, where, in which we are taught to be individuals and where we are striving to be celebrities instead of people who are thinkers. Indeed, man. Um, 
Brother Sam, Brother Sam, PK Collins, man, um, I want to let you know, man, it's been uh, uh, such an honor and a pleasure to, uh, you know, build with you on this platform. Um, I, I'm going to, the link uh, for the Washington Informer will be uh, um, in the description, also the link to the book. But if anybody wants to, you know, for everybody that wants to follow you, um on uh you know your socials if you can let them know how to do so yes uh very simple sam pk collins so facebook twitter instagram linkedin wherever you know that's where i'm at i'm often tweeting about the news local national international i'm often weighing in about the issues of the day so that's where you'll find me hey i i had I had like a whole lot of other questions I wanted to ask you. So we got to do a part two, brother. Now nah, we will. We will, man. I really appreciate you. And we All can right. build up other things. No, most definitely, man. I appreciate you, man. You have a great night, brother. All right. Same to you, brother. Appreciate Thanks. you.